Well, praise the Lord, everyone. I've been here a few days because I'm getting ready to go to several conferences, Friday to Chicago, Saturday to Fort Lauderdale, uh, Monday to St. Louis, and Wednesday to Portland. So I'll be making a circuit and heading back around. So this is my ramp up for that. But it's great to be here tonight, and I want to talk to you about the early Jesus name movement. And I do have a PowerPoint presentation, so uh, there we go. We'll see if it works. I'll figure this all out in a minute. And then I also have some video to show you after a while. But as Brother Shaw mentioned, we are Jesus name people. We believe that is the teaching of the Word of God, the significance of the name of Jesus, that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. And therefore, the name of Jesus is the name of God as revealed for our salvation. It literally means Jehovah Savior, meaning the God of the Old Testament has become our Savior. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the early church. They preached in Jesus' name. They laid hands on the sick in Jesus' name. They cast out demons in Jesus' name. They baptized in Jesus' name. Unfortunately, throughout much of church history, the majority of people lost the significance of the name of Jesus and the practice of water baptism in Jesus' name. It never completely died out, but it was obscured by the use of a threefold formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And although that tracks the words of Matthew 28:19, it misses the significance. The significance is the name of Jesus reveals the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we invoke the name of Jesus, we're going back to the Lord's intention of invoking the fullness of the Godhead for our salvation. And uh, so I want to start with Acts chapter 15, verse 14, and uh, re- start with Scripture to show you a little bit of the significance of the name. In Acts 15, and I think I have it on here, so let's see uh, which button I'm supposed to use. No, it's not that button. Okay, let's try another one. There we go. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And then verse 17, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. And this is the report of Simon Peter, how he went to the household of Cornelius. And if you read in Acts chapter 10, he preached that there's remission of sins in the name of Jesus and you should have faith in the name of Jesus. And while he was preaching, they were filled with the Spirit, and then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So in Acts 15, they're having a council of the church, and they're rehearsing these events and say, Simon Peter has told us how God visited the Gentiles and took out a people for his name. What name? The name of Jesus. And it's a fulfillment of prophecy that the name of the Lord would be called over the Gentiles. And I believe that that's specifically the time when that name is called is supremely when they're baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins. As I said, this is the message that you see throughout the book of Acts, throughout the epistles, throughout the New Testament church. But unfortunately, it gradually got obscured. And a hundred years ago, there was a great renewal, a revival of the significance of the name of Jesus. And that's what we're celebrating. So I'll give you a little bit of the history of it. It never was completely lost, but in throughout history, we do find records of people who baptize in the name of Jesus. You may not be able to see all of this, but I'll just very briefly show you. In the second century, this was the practice of the majority. In fact, 
when you find some different accounts emerging, even when they start mentioning a threefold name, it's always including the name of Jesus. And so we find some of the writers saying, in the name of the Father and in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and in the Holy Spirit. So mostly in the second century, you still find Jesus' name baptism. Where you find a threefold baptism, it still includes the name of Jesus. And in the third century, we still find it's widespread. Uh, we even find groups of people who insisted on using the name of Jesus. We even find Stephen, the Bishop of Rome, whom the Catholic Church would later consider to be a pope, insisting that baptism in Jesus' name only is still proper. But we also find the first mention of baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in the writings of Tertullian. I did find one mention in a book called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, or the Didache, but it mentions both Jesus' name and the threefold formula, leading scholars to indicate that perhaps the threefold formula was a later addition. And the very first unequivocal mention of three names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, comes with the Gnostic heretic Valentinus. And after that, it comes with the early Trinitarian, in fact, the father of the Trinitarian doctrine, Tertullian. But still in this time, we still have most people baptizing, or many people still baptizing in Jesus' name. From the 4th through 6th centuries onward, it starts to diminish. And I'm just going to list some people. Even later on, we find different writers saying it's still valid, even though they didn't practice it themselves. In fact, Pope Nicholas I said, you can baptize either way. It's okay. So apparently there were still people at that date that were questioning, how should we be baptized? The idea was never completely lost. And then in the Middle Ages, we find uh, mention of baptism in Jesus' name. Starting with the Reformation in the 16th century, we find a renewal of this. Some of the Anabaptists begin baptizing in Jesus' name. Some of the people in Martin Luther's day begin to baptize in Jesus' name. He said it was acceptable because, after all, that's the way the apostles did it. So how could we say it's wrong? Then in the 17th century, a number of the Baptists in England begin to go back. In the 19th century, the Plymouth Brethren and others. And then, of course, the 20th century, we find a great revival. And that's what I want to share with you. When the Holy Ghost was poured out in a great measure, it was in 1901, January the 1st, in Topeka, Kansas. A group of people led by Charles Parham began to seek for the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the initial sign of speaking in tongues. And that led to the great Pentecostal revival as people began to uh, speak in tongues. As I said, with Jesus' name baptism, the message of speaking in tongues was never completely lost, but it was greatly obscured and diminished. But when people began studying the Word of God and they began seeking this experience, there was a great revival. And we know it as the 20th century Pentecostal revival. But what's not so well known, along with that revival, there's an immediate return to Jesus' name baptism. Charles Parham himself saw in the book of Acts that people should be baptized in Jesus' name. And so even though he didn't really have a doctrinal reason, because he saw it in the book of Acts, he started practicing it. And so I'm going to give you some examples. Uh, we also find an account of a missionary in Latin America who started baptizing in Jesus' name, 1904. The great Azusa Street revival that spread the Pentecostal revival around the world in, in Los Angeles, 1906 to 1908. We find some people starting to baptize in Jesus' name at that time, in 1907. 
uh, the uh, great church in Mexico, the apostolic church of the faith in Christ Jesus, they traced their Jesus name baptism back to Azusa Street in 1909. Andrew Urshan, a Persian immigrant who came to America, he saw baptism in Jesus' name in the scriptures, began baptizing in 1910. But all these people were just doing it in, in copying the book of Acts, not really understanding the theology behind it, and so not a lot of attention was drawn to it. Uh, but uh, there was a man named William Durham who began, he received the Holy Spirit at Azusa Street in 1907, and he began to preach the finished work of Calvary. What he was simply saying is, Jesus Christ purchased everything at Calvary. So you can receive all the benefits of salvation when you believe on Jesus Christ. You can be sanctified or separated from sin. And then he would go on to say, you can be filled with the Holy Ghost. And he began teaching Acts 2.38, repentance, baptism in Jesus name, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, he did not draw a lot of significance to the name of Jesus at this point, but he preached that Acts 2.38 is God's standard of salvation. And he preached that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the seal of a finished salvation. So he was saying it's more than just mentally believing. You need to go on to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to receive the Holy Ghost. That's God's plan. That's how it's complete. God's standard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is found in Acts 2.4. He has only one standard. So this is what he began preaching. We have an abnormal Christianity in the world today. That is, those we must recognize as Christians, but who are not filled with the Holy Spirit, for which is impossible to find any scriptural provision. So he was saying all these people in the churches, yes, they do believe on the Lord, but we really can't explain how that's sufficient. We don't really have scripture to say to stop there. You need to go on to receive the Holy Spirit. A church, from a scriptural standpoint, is a company of people who are called out of the world, made new creatures in Christ Jesus, buried with him by baptism into death, and filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's preaching the theology that would later lead to a greater understanding. It's interesting that at this time there was a series of books written to defend uh, conservative Christianity against liberal theology called the Fundamentals. And so a, a movement known as the Fundamentalist arose out of this. One of the leaders, A.C. Dixon, approached Durham and he said, with your doctrine of the Holy Ghost saying everybody should receive the Holy Ghost, you indict all of Christianity. He was trying to say, look, all of Christianity doesn't accept this, so how can you say everybody's wrong? Surely you must be wrong. And Durham responded, sir, they deserve to be indicted. He didn't back off one inch. He said, you need to go all the way. Unfortunately, Durham died right at this time in 1912. So he never saw the fulfillment of what I believe he was preaching toward. But there was a great worldwide camp meeting in Arroyo Seco, California in April 1913. Now, this is significant. The great the uh, uh, Los Angeles uh, revival, Azusa Street Mission, from 1906 to 1909, they had services all day, all night, for three years straight. And this is the revival that spread the Pentecostal message literally around the world. People came here from many nations, preachers, missionaries. They received the Holy Ghost. They went back out, and they spread the Pentecostal revival around the world. But after 1909, uh, the, 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 the revival in Los Angeles started diminishing. 
So several years later, a group of the people who had been part of this revival, they said, let's all gather back in Los Angeles. Let's have a big worldwide camp meeting to see if we can press for another great outpouring of the Holy Ghost. So they picked a place called Arroyo Seco, which is the suburbs it's a, 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 of Los Angeles. It's still there. In fact, it's a park today. I've been there, and uh, they said, let's have a camp meeting and see if we can get people from around the world to come, and let's give this a second push. And so they scheduled this, what they call the worldwide camp meeting. And uh, the, the featured speaker was a woman named Maria Woodworth Edder. She began to preach on the power of the name of Jesus. Many were healed. 364 people received the Holy Ghost during that month-long camp meeting. But she also began to preach, and others began to preach, God is wanting to do a new thing. But in retrospect, from historical perspectives, the most significant part of this camp meeting was something that happened at a baptismal service. There was a Canadian minister named R.E. McAllister, and before he was, they were going to baptize people, he was just talking about the various forms of baptism. He said, some people baptized three times. But he said, we know that's not correct, you know, triple immersion once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Holy Spirit. He says, we know that's not right because the apostles didn't even baptize that way. They just baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, when he said that, that shocked the crowd because most of them hadn't really thought about that. And he was just making a historical reference. Uh, and somebody ran up to the platform and said, wait a minute, are you saying we have to baptize that way because there's this person over here uh, in so another part of town, he's saying everybody's wrong unless they're baptized that way. So McAllister got back up, he says, well, I'm not saying everybody has to do that, I'm just saying that's the way the apostles did it. Well, when you tell Pentecostals that's the way the apostles did it, that makes them think because the whole reason why there is a Pentecostal movement is people seeking the experience of the apostles. So for the first time, a lot of people are going to realize, wait a minute, the apostles baptize a different way than we're baptizing. And so that caused quite a stir. That night, there was a man named John Sheppy who was praying. And apparently this really stirred him up. And he was asking God, what's the significance? In the wee hours of the morning, he felt like God gave him a great revelation. As Brother Shaw said, not a new revelation, not an extra biblical revelation, but a, rev a personal revelation of what's already been revealed in Scripture, an illumination. And he began to run throughout the camp shouting about the name of Jesus, something to the effect, I see the power of the name of Jesus. I understand why the apostles used the name of Jesus. There's power in Jesus' name. Well, that stirred the camp. One of the men who really noticed these goings on was a man named Frank Ewart. He had been an immigrant from Australia. He went from Australia to Canada, then Canada to the U.S. He received the Holy Ghost, and he was the assistant pastor for William Durham. When William Durham died, Ewart preached his funeral, and Ewart became the pastor. So he was pastor in Los Angeles. So he remembered Ewart preaching the, about Acts 2.38. He listened carefully when McAllister said, the apostles always baptize in Jesus' name. And then he listened carefully when Sheppy said, there's a power in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is the, reveals the name of God. So that stirred Ewart up. And he was already studying about the oneness of God and how to explain how God is one and how to fit the Trinity into that. And so he began a series of studies with his associate, Glenn Cook. 
Now, Glenn Cook had been the business manager of the Azusa Street Revival. So he was a very close associate of William Seymour, who had led that revival. At this time, he was assistant pastor to um, Ewart. He was also a noted evangelist who brought the Pentecostal message throughout uh, the country. And he had been to the Midwest and, and various places preaching the revival of the Holy Ghost. So Ewart and Cook begin having discussions. What is the significance of Jesus' name baptism? They brought in some other people whom I'll mention in a minute. One of them was named G.T. Haywood, who was a noted African-American pastor in Indianapolis. He was noted because he had a large church, and it was a large interracial church, which was quite unusual for those segregated times. Anyway, Cook and Ewart and uh, Haywood at some point, McAllister at some point, and a man I'm talking about now, Frank Small, they all begin studying this during the year 1913. In November of 1913, Frank Small, who was Canadian, was conducting a baptismal service in Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, Canada. And because they'd been talking about the significance of the name of Jesus, when it came time to do the baptismal service, he just baptized everybody in Jesus' name. And so that was the first Jesus' name baptisms as a direct result of the Seco camp meeting. Well, Frank Ewart, here's a picture of him. By the way, he died in 1947 as a minister of the United Pentecostal Church. But he, he decided the correct method of baptism is in the name of Jesus. And the reason for this is the name of Jesus reveals the fullness of the Godhead. It's not a contradiction with Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but he concluded there's only one God. Jesus is the revelation of the fullness of the Godhead. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the Father. Jesus is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. So when you say, I baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for remission of sins, you are invoking the name, the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he further said, this is part of God's plan of salvation. You're not supposed to just repent and stop. You're supposed to repent, then be baptized in Jesus' name, and then receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with the sign of speaking in tongues. He became so convicted of this that in on April the 15th, 1914, he opened up a new church in Belvedere, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. He and his associate, Glid Cook, he preached the first sermon specifically on Acts 2.38 as the plan of salvation, although I told you that, that others had preached the same kind of thing, but he put it all together. He preached a message on Acts 2.38 as the plan of salvation, as Jesus, as the fullness of the Godhead, and water baptism in the name of Jesus. When he finished, he baptized Glenn Cook in Jesus' name. Glenn Cook baptized him in Jesus' name. Now, why was that so important? It was not the first Jesus' name baptisms. That goes back to the book of Acts. And there have been hundreds and thousands all throughout history. I believe he showed you that. It wasn't the first Jesus' name baptism in the Pentecostal movement. I already told you. The, the, the very first leader, Charles Parham, baptized in Jesus' name. But what was significant, he associated Jesus' name baptism with the understanding of the Godhead. And he specifically said, if you've been baptized another way, you need to be baptized again. Up until this time, they just baptized new converts in Jesus' name. But he said, no, once you understand the truth, you cannot be satisfied with what you did before. You must take a step of faith, as they did in Acts 19. Even if you already have been baptized, you need to be baptized a second time specifically to take on the name of Jesus. 
So that's why we have what's called the Oneness Pentecostal Movement or the Jesus Name Movement because it marked a break from the Trinitarian form of baptism. And we are celebrating then 1913, 1914, a year from April 1913 to April 1914, the the preaching of Jesus name baptism and the beginning of the modern Jesus name Pentecostal movement. And that's what this church is part of today. The Assemblies of God was formed that same week uh, by leaders who are trying to form a new Pentecostal organization. And G.T. Haywood in 1914, he was baptized in Jesus' name. It's interesting, Glenn Cook went to St. Louis and preached Jesus' name baptism. Somebody there was stirred up about it and sent word to Haywood, uh, Cook is coming your way to Indianapolis with a false doctrine. When he gets there, don't receive him. But Cook got there before the letter did. And Cook began preaching about Jesus' name, baptism. Haywood had already been studying this, had already been in communication. He was riding a streetcar one day when the voice of God spoke to him from Isaiah and said, walk in the light, lest darkness come upon you. And he realized God's dealing with me. I've been studying this message. This message is being preached. I need to accept it. If I reject it, then I'm going to go backwards instead of forward. So that convinced him he needed to obey what he'd been studying in Scripture. And so G.T.A. Haywood led 465 members of his congregation to be baptized in Jesus' name in one day. So when he got the message, don't accept Cook's message, uh, it's false doctrine, he wrote back and said, too late, I've already accepted it. Praise God. He was later ridiculed for saying, because uh, he, he became quickly became one of the foremost Jesus' name preachers, and uh, some uh, uh, rebuked him saying, oh, they just have a lot of hay, wood, and stubble. But that's okay. He became a noted Jesus name preacher. Interesting, there were the two ministers who had founded the Assemblies of God, their name were Howard Goss and Ian Bell. In 1915, both of them were baptized in Jesus' name. And it seemed that perhaps the entire Assemblies of God would soon accept this message. However, a great bitter dispute arose. Some said it's against tradition. And so they decided that we cannot afford, they had a, a meeting, they, in fact they had two, two years, they had meetings, they decided we cannot break with church history, we must stick with church history. So Ian Bell decided to go ahead and stay with the Assemblies of God, although he never renounced his Jesus name baptism, he decided it wasn't something that you should divide over, and so he, he was the first chairman, the first leader. And he had lost his position during this controversy, but he decided to stick with it, and so they elected him a leader again the second time. Uh, Goss, however, said uh, he had actually been a convert of Parham. He had been an atheist who was converted under Parham's ministry when he saw speaking in tongues. That's what convinced him that God was real. He received the Holy Ghost, and he said Parham had baptized him in Jesus' name already. But he did not understand the doctrinal significance because it wasn't really being taught. So when this was taught, he felt like he needed to take a stand. So even though he'd already been baptized in Jesus' name, he got baptized in Jesus' name a second time because he wanted to take a stand and say this message is right. So Goss became later the first general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church. Quite interesting. The two founders, the two organizers of the Assemblies of God, they split on this issue. One became the chairman of the Assemblies of God. One became the chairman of the United Pentecostal Church. It's interesting how, how history works. 
Uh, also, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, their leaders were baptized in Jesus' name, including McAllister. Amy Simple McPherson was baptized in Jesus' name. She later broke away from the Assemblies of God and formed uh, the Church of the Foursquare Gospel, although she never really continued that teaching. We have anecdotal evidence that Charles, that uh, C.H. Mason, who was the founder of the Church of God in Christ, he was privately baptized in Jesus' name, but he, his bishops were not in favor of it, so he did not make a public issue of it. But some of the early leaders of the Church of God in Christ, which is a predominantly African-American organization, they were baptized in Jesus' name. So it was quite a sensational thing. But in the end, in 1916, there was a split between the Trinitarians and the Oneness people at the fourth generation. Council in St. Louis. I had uh, interesting privilege of, bapti- uh, of interviewing back in uh, about 1989, I think it was, the last surviving minister from that council. And he explained to me what happened at that time. It was quite, quite interesting. Uh, there were mostly young preachers at that time. Anyway, G.T. Haywood, I've mentioned him. You can see uh, a picture of him. The early oneness people had to form some type of organization. They formed an organization that only lasted one year. Uh, this was in the middle of World War I. And at that time, it was very important to have ministerial credentials if you were a minister because that, w- that was how you got discounts on the railroad. And that's how people traveled to, to different cities and to conferences and to revivals is by railroad. Also, uh, if you were a minister and wanted to work full-time in ministry, if you didn't want to be drafted in the army, then you had to prove your ministerial credentials. Since it was a new organization, the government wouldn't recognize their credentials, and the railroad wouldn't recognize recognize their credentials. But G.T. Haywood had already been associated with a small group called the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. Under his influence, they accepted the Jesus name message. And so this first group, the General Assembly of the Apostolic Assemblies, they merged with the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. And that became the predominant uh, oneness Pentecostal organization in 1918. Uh, however, there, were, there was a, a split, a three-way split in 1925, and I won't go through all the details, but two of them ended up forming what is now known as the United Pentecostal Church International, which was a merger in 1945. One of the key leaders that I've mentioned was Andrew Urshan, and he, became, he was the father of who later became one of our general superintendents, Nathaniel Urshan. In fact, Urshan College and Urshan Graduate School of Theology are named after Urshan father and son. So probably the three foremost leaders of the early oneness movement were Frank Ewart, the Australian immigrant, G.T. Haywood, the African-American, and Andrew Urshan, the Persian immigrant. He was of the Assyrian minority in, in his own country of Persia which was predominantly Muslim, so he fled during massive persecutions where the Muslims were killing the Christians, and he escaped um, and came to the U.S. He also became the first oneness missionary to Russia in his travels. He traveled through Russia and spread Jesus' name baptism there. I think it's interesting that the roots of the oneness movement are completely international, multiracial, multicultural. Isn't that interesting? I don't think it's by accident. The point I'm saying is no one person founded this movement, but God moved on many people, and a movement arose as people responding to the word of Scripture and the move of the Holy Ghost. So here's a few conclusions, um, and I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm going to show a little DVD about this, uh, a reenactment that's, uh, that I'll, so hopefully you can cue it up to the right place in a little while. But 
Jesus' name baptism was practiced from the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, and many of the early leaders, the famous leaders, embraced it. Not all of them emphasized it or continued it, but amazingly, the majority of the early leaders actually practiced it or were baptized in Jesus' name. I believe it's because God was leading people. The three uh, early leaders, Ewart and his associate Cook, Haywood, Urshan, so that's four, uh, four key leaders at the very beginning, and others began the Oneness Pentecostal movement. But I would say the true founder was the Holy Ghost. Let me just say a little bit about Cook. I told you he was the business manager at Azusa Street. When he came to Azusa Street, he was a holiness preacher. He rejected speaking in tongues. He thought he already had the Holy Ghost. So uh, they had... Um, uh, testimony service at the Azusa Street Mission, and people would stand in line for 30 minutes or an hour to share their testimony. So when it came his turn to share his testimony, he got up and he denounced them. He said, you don't have to speak in tongues. It's not right. I have the Holy Ghost. I didn't speak in tongues. And he was trying to get out everything he could as fast as he could because he knew that they were going to sit him down. But Seymour, the leader, just let him keep going on. And the longer he went, the more convicted he felt of what he was saying. So in the middle of his harangue against the Pentecostals, Cook broke down and began apologizing and repenting, saying, I've got a bad spirit. And a few days later, God filled him with the Holy Ghost. Praise God. So these men were filled with the Holy Ghost, and as they studied the Scriptures, they saw that the apostles always baptized in Jesus' name. And they further saw the theology. There's a reason for it. It's not just a practice, not just a ritual, but it's because it expresses the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus, that saving power is in the name of Jesus, that delivering power is in the name of Jesus, and we need to confess the name of Jesus. And so they begin preaching the, the plan of salvation according to Acts 2.38. And they begin to preach this as the new birth experience. This is God's plan for the church today. The majority of the Pentecostals stayed with the traditional formula. But it's interesting, over time, only a minority of people in those churches are still receiving the Holy Spirit. It's not intentional, but I think when they made a, a fateful choice, we're going to follow church tradition or we're going to follow Scripture. When they follow church tradition then the emphasis is not on receiving the Holy Ghost. And even in their own churches, the vast majority no longer receive the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues, even though that is their doctrine. The Jesus name message, however, uh, has continued to grow. And there are many Trinitarian Pentecostals and Charismatics who are baptizing in Jesus' name. Some are just doing it because they see it in the Scriptures. Others are beginning to get a, a revelation of the oneness of God and doing it. So not only in the oneness churches, such as the United Pentecostal Church International, Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, Apostolic Assembly, and so on, but in many other churches, people are being baptized in Jesus' name. I meet people regularly, uh, leaders, whenever I go to these meetings, they'll come up to me and say, uh, I just wanted you to know I was baptized in Jesus' name. Uh, I just wanted you to know that they said I baptize you in the name of uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, which is Jesus Christ or, or something like that. I thought you just want to know that. And uh, many, uh, many prominent people have come to me privately and said, we've been baptized in Jesus' name. And because they know I'm particularly interested in that, and they will tell me. So only the Lord knows how to evaluate all that. And only the Lord knows the significance of that. But I'm not looking to condemn anybody. I'm looking to preach the message as far and wide as I can. But I want you to know there are millions of people who are embracing this message. 
Conservative estimate would be 15 million. A more broad estimate that would be comparable, like when the Baptists say how many people they have and the Assemblies of God say how many people they have and the Catholics say how many people they have. It usually includes everybody who's associated or identifies. Under that more broad definition, there are probably as many as 30 million oneness Pentecostals worldwide. Uh, there's seven large organizations in the United States, and we have a meeting every year at Urson Graduate School of Theology with the leaders of these seven groups. The largest, of course, is United Pentecostal Church International. But there are large groups in other countries. There is a very large, some large groups in China that we can't even begin to count exactly how many there are because of the persecution. But we know there are literally millions of people around the world who are baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ who are receiving the Holy Ghost. In 100 years' time, there's a lot to celebrate. And I believe the best is yet to come. I believe this is our day. This is the day of the revival of the name of Jesus. Praise God. Now, technology's cooperated so far. I'm finished with this little PowerPoint. So if you can queue up to the right spot, we're going to start with a reenactment, if all goes well, of the Arroyo Seco camp meeting. She has just concluded a revival for Brother Bosworth in Dallas, Texas. And God has mightily poured out his spirit. We are looking forward to what Jesus has to say to us today. The camp meeting convened in Arroyo Seco, California, April 1913. The Arroyo Seco, which means dry stream in Spanish, is a seasonal river that begins in the San Gabriel Mountains north of Pasadena and flows south towards Los Angeles. The 1913 camp was located in the same area where Scott had led the Azusa Street Camp Meeting a few years earlier. Frank Ewart gives his eyewitness account of this historic camp meeting. At the great worldwide camp meeting staged in Los Angeles in 1913, there were hundreds of preachers present from all over the Union and Canada. There was unquestionably a great revival. By a careful count, 364 received the baptism with the Bible sign of speaking with tongues within the four weeks of the meetings. However, the people were restless, inquisitive, and on the tiptoe of expectancy. One day, a preacher spoke from the passage in Jeremiah 31, 22. Jesus is restoring the apostolic faith to his people. Perhaps, as Brother Penson has said, God is going to do a new thing in this camp meeting. I am hungry for this new thing. The very suggestion of God's doing a new thing struck fire in the minds and hearts of the saints. And from then on to the end of the camp, one could hear expressions of the hope that God would soon do a new thing for his people. The new thing was exhibited to those who had ears and eyes to perceive it. It was the occasion of the baptismal service, and Brother Scott had selected evangelist R.E. McAllister to preach on the subject of water baptism. The preacher preached along in the usual manner until he came to the division in his sermon of the different methods of baptism versus the scriptural mode. He mentioned the trine immersionist method baptizing the candidate three times face downward. He analyzed it thus. They justify their method 
by saying that baptism is in the likeness of Christ's death. And make a point from the scripture that Christ bowed his head when he died. Then he continued that the three dips or baptisms were to honor each person in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He concluded abruptly by saying, The scriptural answer to this is that the apostles invariably baptized their converts once in the name of Jesus Christ. That the words Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were never used in Christian baptism. There was an inaudible shudder that swept the preachers on the platform and the people in the vast arena. The preacher noticed it and stood in awesome silence. Brother Denny, a missionary from China, who was sitting down in the front row, mounted the platform in one bound, took the preacher aside. Brother McAllister, don't preach this way. Otherwise, this camp meeting is going to be associated with Dr. Sykes. I invite you now to come with me to the river and be baptized. Alistair's baptismal sermon provided the spark necessary to revisit the manner of the apostolic pattern for water baptism, itinerant evangelist John Sheppey's actions ignited a brand new fire. Sheppey spent the night following McAllister's sermon in prayer, seeking direction from God on the matter. God, reveal your name to me, Lord, in Jesus' name. In the morning, he emerged from his place of prayer convicted not only of Jesus' name baptism, but also of the absolute oneness of God. Sheppey ran through the campground, spreading his newfound understanding of Scripture. The events of the Orozco camp meeting served as a catalyst, really, for the whole emerging oneness movement. The restoration or the interest in baptism in Jesus' name somehow sparked further interest in the nature of the Godhead, and and the oneness of the Godhead emerges very quickly uh, during the next year or so, along with a teaching of from John 3, 5, about water and spirit baptism. So this whole Orosico events and baptism in Jesus' name serve as the, the catalyst, as, the, as this last landmark on, on the road home. The late 19th century saw the rise of the gospel song. With its simple folk-like melodies and rhythmic tunes, the gospel song was an appealing alternative to the staid and more traditional hymns the church had used. One prolific writer of the gospel song was Thoreau Harris, who penned over 500 songs. Harris's songs were appealing to early Pentecostals with their themes of baptism in Jesus' name, the blood of the Lamb, the second coming of Christ, and the love of God. In 1916, Harris penned his song, Baptized in Jesus' Name. This song appealed to early Pentecostals in that it celebrated the recent revelation of Jesus' name baptism and at the same time recognized the opposition that believers would face. His song reads in part, 
Today, I gladly bear the bitter cross of scorn, reproach, and shame. I count the worthless praise of men but loss, baptized in Jesus' name. Our faith in him who gave his life for man, these sacred rites proclaim. From out the watery grave we rise, baptized in Jesus' name. The gracious spirit of the risen Lord upon the believers come, when they who heard with joy obeyed his word, baptized in Jesus' name. Then whatsoe'er he bids me, I will do, the mockers scoff and blame, to Christ and to his revelation true, baptized in Jesus' name. Glory, glory to the Lamb of God, glory, glory for the cleansing flood, I will follow where the saints have trod, baptized in Jesus' name. I preached my first public sermon on Acts 2.38 on April 15, 1914. The message took fire, and that night a revival started. Brother Glenn A. Cook had come back from an eastern trip and came out to the meeting that night, accepted the message, and became my assistant in the tent campaign. I baptized Brother Cook, and he baptized me. I am convinced I need to be rebaptized in Jesus' name. Anything less would not be complete obedience to his word. Anything less would be denying the apostolic faith. I want to follow Jesus wherever he leads the church. So Frank Ewart, because of your profession of your faith, and because you have accepted the apostolic truth, I now baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In Jesus' name. Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Now, Brother Ewart, I want you to baptize me in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of my sins. Glenn Cook, upon profession of your faith and your belief in the apostolic doctrine, I now baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. After Frank Ewart preached on Jesus' name baptism and began preaching on Acts 2.38, a great revival broke out. He and Glenn Cook began baptizing many people in Jesus' name, and they reported a number of amazing miracles. Many people were healed in the waters of baptism. Many people received the Holy Ghost when they were baptized. And this revival began to spread not only in Los Angeles but all throughout the United States. Uh, Brother Cook went on a tour throughout the U.S. preaching about Jesus' name baptism. Uh, he made contact with Bishop G.T. Haywood, pastor of a great church in Indianapolis, Indiana. And 465 people were baptized in Jesus' name at one time. And then both Brother Ewart and Brother Haywood began writing articles about the message of Jesus' name baptism and the oneness of God. And this message soon spread literally around the world. It made a great impact on mission fields. There are many other people who had been studying this message, who had been interacting with Ewart and Cook even before um, Ewart began baptizing in Jesus' name. There are others who were considering this, and so soon there were hosts of ministers who had joined together, baptizing in Jesus' name and preaching the message of Acts 2.38, the plan of salvation, uh, consisting of repentance, water baptism, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so that has led in the last 100 years to a great oneness Pentecostal or Jesus name movement. Sometimes it's also called the apostolic movement. According to the most recent scholarship, 
there are approximately 30 million Oneness Pentecostals across the world. Now, that's an inclusive number that um, makes a comparison with other organizations and movements. So even if you took a very conservative approach and looked only at those who are currently active that you can document specifically and maybe tossing out uh, some estimates, you would still come to probably 15 million practicing Pentecostals who are baptized in Jesus' name, who are filled with the Holy Ghost, or who are a part of a church that preaches Acts 2.38. There are a number of large organizations, and the largest is the United Pentecostal Church International. And as the UPCI, we have almost 45,000 congregations, including preaching points, in 203 nations around the world as of 2013. We're also in fellowship with a number of other apostolic organizations. Every year at Urshan Graduate School of Theology, we have an annual apostolic fellowship summit in which the leaders of the seven largest oneness organizations meet together to discuss how we can work to promote apostolic revival worldwide. So it's exciting to live in these last days with a great restoration of the Jesus name message. Of course, we believe it comes from the book of Acts and the New Testament church. And we believe this message has been throughout church history. But we know there was a great renewal and revival 100 years ago. And we're celebrating that revival today. And so all of us need to participate in this revival because it is truly an apostolic revival. It's truly based on the teaching of Jesus Christ and his apostles. And it's a continuation of the New Testament church. So I encourage you to be part of that. If you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, then you should be. It's not only in the Bible, but it's being experienced by millions of people today. It truly is an exciting time.